A few years ago, Dave and I were invited to one of those fancy fundraiser dinners with multiple courses prepared by chefs that had been flown in from all over the country. And I had just put on my black taffeta dress and my sparkly black shoes and was waiting for our ride to pick us up when the telephone rang. And it was a dear friend and a member of the congregation who had had a heart attack. The family was calling to say dad was in ICU and not expected to make it through the night. Now, normally, I would have just put on some blue jeans and dashed to the hospital, but I was a little torn because someone had already purchased, at the tune of several hundred dollars, my place at the dinner table that night. And so I decided that I would just go on to the hospital in my fancy black taffeta dress and sparkly shoes and then make it to the dinner a little bit late. And I remember walking down the hospital corridor into the ICU and thinking to myself, this just feels wrong. There is so much pain and sadness and anguish in this very corridor, and here I am dressed in a party dress. There are times when joy just seems out of place. Many folks during the month of December feel this same dissonance. While the holiday carolers appear at the door singing fa-la-la-la-la, someone at the house just next door is meeting with the hospice nurse to decide if this is the moment to finally say goodbye to dad. While we bustle about looking for the latest electronic gadget for our sons, mothers in Yemen watch their sons' eyes vacant as they suffer the ravages of malnutrition. As a couple dedicates a six-month-old baby here on these steps and just beams with joy, another couple sits there in the pews grieving a recent miscarriage. Today's lesson from the prophet Isaiah gives us a picture of this same cognitive dissonance. The book of Isaiah, one of the prophetic books of the Old Testament, is a very long book that spans the course of over a hundred years of history for the people of Israel. And as Dr. Graves explained a couple of weeks ago when he preached on a passage from Isaiah, Isaiah is really three different books that have been linked together. First Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, focuses on that period of history where the people felt this impending sense of doom and gloom because Assyria was just about to invade. And the middle section of Isaiah describes a second attack, this time an attack from Babylon, where the wealthiest, best, brightest talent pool of Israel is deported to live in Babylon. And then the last section, what is sometimes called Third Isaiah, describes the joyful return when they finally came back to their homeland because King Cyrus told them, you can come back safely, you can rebuild your temple, you can rebuild your lives. And they were so joyful about returning to this land which they saw as their spiritual oasis. But today's section that we read from chapter 35 throws us a curveball because although we're reading in first Isaiah about this period of doom and gloom where the people were deeply depressed, where Chapter after chapter, we read about the destruction and the curse and the terror and the wrath of God. This little chapter 35 sounds different. 
it reads like a beautiful poem. It uses the word joy four times. It talks in many beautiful images about the hope and the promise and the blessing of God. And frankly, it doesn't fit. Some scholars don't know what to make of it, and they say, well, maybe this chapter is kind of a bridge to the next part of Isaiah, where God does eventually appear with joy and hope. And other scholars say, well, maybe it was an editing error. And what I picture is some scroll getting placed into the wrong jar and then placed into the wrong cave. And so it would be like you and I finding that new movie Frozen right next to the movie Apocalypse Now. It just doesn't fit. Recently, maybe a year or so ago, the Dalai Lama was having a significant birthday and he invited Archbishop Desmond Tutu to come and visit him for a week. And so here you have two Nobel Peace Prize winners, one a Buddhist from Tibet and one a Christian from South Africa, and the two of them spend the week rehearsing the events of their lives, just talking informally together, and between the two of them they have encountered horrendous suffering, cancer, the loss of a child, being exiled from one's homeland, receiving death threats, being hated and despised by one's enemies. And yet what emerged from this week-long visit between these two was a book called The Book of Joy. In sharing the stories of their lives, they wrote The Book of Joy. And both of them insist in the book that joy is so much more than happiness, that it's bigger than that, that joy is not dependent upon the external circumstances of our lives. And I don't know how that strikes you. It kind of sounds good on paper to me, but is it really true? I mean, surely it could be true if you were the Dalai Lama or the Archbishop Desmond Tutu, but is it really true for us? Most of us seek joy by seeking happiness. We want meaningful work and good, strong friendships and good, healthy relationships with our family members and some kind of measure of financial security and a way that we can give back of our time and our talent and our treasure. And so we seek joy by building a happy life. And we know that on most days, joy seems more at home at a dinner party than it does in an ICU unit where someone is saying goodbye to their father. But there are days that we wish we could be like the Dalai Lama or the Archbishop and find joy in the midst of suffering. There are days in each of our lives that we would never want to repeat, days of deep pain and sadness that we wish we never even had to think about again. And there are also days in our national identity that are seared into our muscle memory, and we know exactly where we were when we heard the news, like the day Kennedy was shot, or the day that the Challenger space shuttle went down, and of course, 9-11. The collective suffering of the nation was palpable. After 9-11, an audio tape was released, and on the tape, you can hear the voices of the firefighters who were working to save people in the South Tower of the World Trade Center. You can hear some of the firefighters talking in code, calmly doing their jobs. Some of those firefighters reached the 78th floor 
and entered the sky lobby where scores of people were trapped and had been waiting for an hour to be rescued. At 9.48, Chief Palmer, along with the fire marshal and a company of firefighters, entered the sky lobby and found some injured, some dead, but many waiting for rescue. Can you imagine the joy on their faces when the rescue squad arrived? A reporter writes of this moment. In their final two minutes, they could behold the promise of deliverance. And at 9.50, the tower collapsed. Was that two-minute period of joy out of place? The 35th chapter of Isaiah sings songs of joy, but it is sandwiched in between chapters 34 and 36, which announce gloom and doom. But even within chapter 35, the poetry paints a picture of real-life images that don't go together, like the cracked earth of the desert, blooming like the crocus, like the burning sand, becoming a lush marshland, like waters spurting up like a fountain in the wilderness. It's the image that comes to me is of the desert of Nevada becoming the tropical beauty of the Florida Keys. In addition, the people in this text are changed. The lame are now leaping like the deer, and the speechless are singing for joy, and the blind can see, and the deaf have their ears unstopped. How dare this prophet dance around wearing a party dress while the people are experiencing economic collapse, political disaster, the loss of their loved ones, and a war that has wiped out their home temple? Was the prophet just trying to encourage them and say, one day, one day, God will make it all right? Or was the prophet saying that there was somehow joy right there in the midst of the ruins? In her recent book, Sister Joyce Rupp reminded me of the story of the talented German composer, Beethoven. When Beethoven learned that he was about to lose his hearing, he fell into a deep depression and became terribly frightened. He exited the fashionable music scene in Vienna and traveled to a cottage to be alone. And there he contemplated ending his own life. He wrote a farewell letter to his brother, a letter that was only discovered after Beethoven's death 25 years later. No one seems to know what enabled Beethoven to transition from despondency to a joyful passion but after he left that cottage, he composed a hundred pieces of music. And the last piece was the Ninth Symphony, affectionately called Ode to Joy. He wrote it while he was completely deaf. Sometimes God shows up in the midst of pain in ways that just don't make sense. Against all human logic, joy erupts at our lowest moments in life, and none of us would seek suffering as a path to joy. We know that it is character building, but we would rather do with a little less character and avoid all that suffering. But life inevitably takes us to places where joy seems out of place. How then are we to find joy in the midst of suffering?
the prophet Isaiah says, Say to those who are of a fearful heart, but a better translation of fearful heart is a racing heart. When our hearts are racing, sometimes we just don't know if God will ever come. Even if our lives are happy-go-lucky, hunky-dory, we still do not always sense that God is present to us. Another translation for the word fearful heart is a hurried heart. And sometimes we're just hurrying and racing through life. Maybe we're going from wonderful event to wonderful event, but in the midst of all that hurrying, we don't sense the divine presence of God within our ordinary days. We are not so much suffering as we are just too busy and too bored to experience the wonder of God's inbreaking presence. Recently, I listened to a religious podcast that talked about the meaning of Advent, and there was a guest speaker on this podcast, and she said something I had never heard anybody say before about Advent. She said that oftentimes in Advent, we think about the first coming of Christ. We look back to Jesus born in the manger, and sometimes during Advent, someone talks about the second coming of Christ, the day when God will come and make it all right. And it seems like that's what we talk about during Advent, but she said, what about the third? coming of Christ, when God comes among us and into our hearts and lives now. Why aren't we talking about that, she said. Now, Isaiah uses a strange word in this poem. It is a, a word that tripped me up every time I read the passage over the last several weeks. It is the word highway. It says that there will be a highway in the desert. And I was just in Israel for 10 days, and I think we were only on a highway once. They don't have many highways there. And we all know that in the time of Jesus and in the time of Isaiah, there were no highways, not in the way we think of a highway. So what is meant by the word highway? In the Bible, when the word highway is used, it is a royal highway. It is the road that God travels. And in this passage, we are told that there will be a holy highway, a highway built for us to travel, which means that you and I will be on that road with God, that God will come and be with us on the road no matter what, even in the midst of suffering. One Bible scholar, Christopher Seitz, suggests that maybe Isaiah knew what Isaiah was doing by placing within this section about despair and destruction a poem about delight and joy because maybe that mirrors the reality of our lives. Isaiah encases the story of joy within the story of despair, because many of us live in exactly that place. We live somewhere between the pole of hope and despair, and sometimes the chapters of our own lives reveal a blurry mix where despair and joy commingle, and suffering and delight can be all mixed up within one day. And regardless of where we are, God can show up there. Isaac Watts was born in England in 1674. When he was born on that day, his father was in prison because his father had challenged 
the traditions of the official English church. His mother nursed him on the steps of the jail. And later, as he was a teenager growing up and going to church with his dad, he used to sit next to his dad during church and grumble about how terrible the hymns were. And his dad said, well, then write some new ones. And he did. He wrote 750 hymns. Some of them were so modern and offensive at the time that they called them Watts whims. But many of them have become so beloved for generations that they still fill the pages of our hymnal today. And one of the most famous is Joy to the World, written 300 years ago this year. It is one of the most beloved. It was sung by Andrew Williams and Bing Crosby, but also by Ella Fitzgerald and Johnny Cash. And you know, it's such a great Christmas hymn, but it doesn't talk about shepherds and angels or any wise ones kneeling at the feet of Jesus. It isn't even based on the Christmas story. It is based on Psalm 98, a psalm of joy. And when you look at the life of Isaac Watt, you have to wonder where he got the inspiration to write a hymn that was all about joy. Because Isaac Watts was five foot tall, frail, and sickly. He fell in love and proposed to a young lady, and she turned him down because even though she loved him, she found him terribly unattractive. He was offered a full scholarship to Oxford, but his father made him turn it down so that he could study at a school that was more progressive in, his think in its thinking about God. He served a, a significant church in London, but a year into that pastorate, he began suffering from a serious psychiatric disorder, which caused him to have to resign from his pastorate. When we look at his life, we can certainly understand why he wrote that hymn called, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. But what do you suppose made him want to write a hymn about joy? <laughs> 